1: From the dark web to your radio dial, you are
0: listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 W-O-A-I. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm thrilled to be joined this week by Congressman Will Hurd uh, from the 23rd Congressional District in the state of Texas. Uh, thank you for joining us, Congressman.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely. So. A politician on a cyber talk radio program, and uh, folks are probably wondering, "What are we doing here? Wasn't that covered earlier during Drive Time Talk Radio?" But no, um, this congressman is a cybersecurity professional now turned politician. Uh, one of the few there in Washington D.C.
1: Yeah, I think there's, there's actually four of us that have a computer science background. Um, so, that not too many. Four out of out of four hundred and thirty-five is not much.
0: No. Um, it's, uh, probably ties into, uh, some of the state of the, uh, just computer science education and the shortage we have across the nation, uh, both in Congress and then outside of Congress here in the, the workforce. So, um, we're, uh, on the air here heading into, uh, inauguration week, um, in 2017, you're going to be, uh, busy working on, uh, all sorts of, uh, cybersecurity related, um, legislation. Uh, what are three things that, uh, you hope to get accomplished this year with your, uh, Folks there in Washington,
1: one is to improve access at the middle school level to coding. Um, I think that's you know so important for our kids to be to exposed sooner. Uh, Another one is this this idea of creating a cyber national guard um, that will help you know uh, increase the number of defenders we have um, of our digital infrastructure. And the third thing is to improve. The amount of information sharing when it comes to cyber attacks between the federal government and the private sector. We had moves and uh, we passed the Cybersecurity Act of 2015 that established a framework for this, but now we got to make sure that we're um, having actionable and real time information passed between the, the federal government and the private sector.
0: Yeah. So if you'd like to hear uh, us dive into the details of those after the bottom of the hour break in the second half of the program today, uh, Congressman Heard will go into details on those three items. Uh, here, uh, to start the program, though, I want to give him a chance to go through some of his background um, and, and how he's uh, ended up now in Congress today. So uh, you said you got a computer science degree, and then you you took that and went where with it?
1: So I actually went to the CIA. And, and, and I think the the reason I, I did a, a computer science degree at Texas A&M was because I had an internship here in San Antonio at Southwest Research Institute um, in robotics, and that was my first exposure to any type of coding, and I thought it was awesome and decided to take computer science at high school at John Marshall, and I had a, a, a counselor at my high school that was always hounding me to go to Texas A&M. I thought I was going to go to Stanford, and I said, if I go to Texas A&M for a tour, will you leave me alone, and he said yes, and I went fell in love, and I'm glad um, I took Com- computer science but um, I had an experience I had never been outside of Texas and I'm walking across campus it's my freshman year in college I see a sign that says take two journalism classes in Mexico City for $425 I had 450 bucks in my bank account so I went to Mexico fell in love being in another culture seeing things that I had only read about in books and I decided to add international studies as a minor and the first class I took um, I had a a guest lecturer who was a former CIA officer told the most amazing stories and I had done something I had not done at that point in college. I went into my professor 's door and knocked on his door, and said, "Tell me more and That began my interest in the agency and When I applied, they looked at me for a technical position, but I really wanted to go into operations and so um, you know I did those interviews and and the rest is history yeah and and I spent uh, two years in d c what I used to call the super secret CIA training facility called the Farm, um,
0: but now it's on Google Maps. Yeah, and not so secret anymore. <laughs> it's hard to hide secrets with the internet.
1: <laughs> it really, it really is. I, the first time when I decided to run for Congress, I sat down with a buddy of mine, and I was undercover my entire career. I was, you know, um, uh, nine and a half years, and most of the time it was I was State Department. Now I did not operate an alias and and you know assume name and identities. And we sit down for lunch, and i have known this guy for 10 years, and he goes, tell me about the farm. And he uses a true name. And I was freaked out. I was like, how did you know that name? And he says, what are you talking about? I was like, how do you know the true name of the farm? He goes, well, it's in every book and movie. So yeah, uh, yeah it was. We're, we're the only ones that thought it was a secret.
0: <laughs> no, it's it's kind of funny. I mean, it's like, yeah, the, the NSA has a large facility here in San Antonio, and um this is one of these uh, pieces with the internet now and information moving around so quickly, things that the government would have tried to hide to, for a defense perspective, you can't hide anymore. We've got to handle security of these things a different way. Um, you have to keep it physically safe, that facility over there, but they have to keep themselves safe online as well.
1: Yeah. And, and look, it it ends, you know, it, it, it ties over into how you think about, um, digital tools or weapons, if you will. and, you know, if you were trying to build a, if the Chinese got plans for a fifth-generation fighter, it would take them a long time to come up with the counter to our fifth-generation fighter. But in, in the cyber world, as, as you know, um, as soon as a, a tool is out there, anybody can use it, and you can come up with a countermeasure pretty quickly. And so sometimes I think um, we believe that if we hold on to um, a tool um, that is going to give us some kind of advantage. Well, um, other everybody else knows as well, and th- this is one of the issues of dealing in Congress. Um, you know, I, I ran for office um, because I was shocked by the caliber of our elected officials. And when I was overseas, I did after after being in the farm. I was in India for two years, Pakistan for two years, New York City for two years, and then Afghanistan for a year and a half, and. Um, one night, a bomb goes off in front of the embassy, takes out a section of the wall, kills some of our local guards, and my unit was responsible for trying to figure out what happened. And my team, we conduct about two dozen operations in a very short period of time. And later that night, that's this happened about 3:30 in the morning. Later that night, we had a congressional delegation; uh, it was from the Hipsy, the House Intelligence Select Committee, and. You know, I um, our standard operating procedure for these briefings were business casual, you know, slacks, button-up shirt, and I'd come in in tactical gear, and you know, I had a long beard and bushy hair. I uh, wore local clothes. You know, yeah. all my all my campaign teams always ask me, "Do you have pictures from your time when you were in the agency?" And I was like, I don't, "I don't think folks in West Texas want to see me looking like a Taliban." You no. Know? And and um, we get in the briefing, and the first thing I hear is a member of Congress saying, "Is the CIA going to cut this briefing short so we can get to the bazaar to buy rugs?" I'm annoyed. Oh, man. We get in the briefing and um, somebody asks, this is 2008 timeframe, by the way, uh, why was Iran not supporting the Taliban in Afghanistan the way they were supporting other groups in, in in Iraq? It's a pretty crummy question, but I started explaining the Sunni Shia divide and this member of Congress raises his hand and he says, heard, what's the difference between the Sunni and the Shia? And I'm thinking he's getting ready to make a really inappropriate joke. And who am I to deny him this opportunity? So my response was, I don't know, Congressman. What's the difference? And his face goes red. He didn't know that difference. And this is a guy who's spending, you know, billions of hard-earned taxpayer dollars. He's making decisions on sending boys and girls to places like Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen. Yeah, I it's unacceptable. Yeah. And, and and you can translate that into cyber world. The number of members of Congress that think the direct messaging function within, you know, an application like Twitter or Facebook is the dark web. Is pretty scary. Uh, I wish that was a joke. I wish that was the punchline of a joke, but but it's the reality. And so there is some, there's a basic level of knowledge that doesn't exist, especially when it comes to cyberspace.
0: Yeah. So for anyone listening, uh, our tagline for the program here is from the dark web to your radio dial. Um, the dark web is not Twitter. The dark web is not Facebook Messenger. Um, the dark web is a place where you can buy and sell people. The dark web is a place where you can buy and sell the information about all sorts of people. Um, and you can, it's a black market online. It's all the things you could think of. You can buy and sell arms there. That You can trade arms for a pool of credit card numbers. You can trade arms for people's uh, medical records. So there's all sorts of bad things going on there in the, the dark web. and They're trading both information and access, so a hacker may get into systems that are not valuable to them, um, but they might be valuable to somebody else, so they'll trade access uh, maybe to a U.S. bank that uh, doesn't entertain them much to get access to uh, an infrastructure um, in another country that they care about being into, so... Um, there's all sorts of all the things you could imagine going on in physical trading and, and physical things happens in the cyber world as well. So uh, yeah, everybody getting an understanding that uh, the Internet looks safe, looks just like a nice shiny neighborhood. You go to these nice clean websites, it looks like a nice clean storefront on Main Street in America, but there's alleyways on the Internet.
1: Or, or or the wild wild west, you know. I'm sure some of your listeners probably probably watch Westworld. You know, yeah. um, there's there's parts of that that exist on the on the internet in, in in some of these other areas.
0: Yeah. So there's an IT subcommittee in Congress, and you said we've so we've got four folks that have computer programming backgrounds. That how do you put together an IT subcommittee of representatives and have thoughtful discussion there?
1: Well, one of the things that I have learned in my two years in Congress is that um, my colleagues, they recognize the importance um, of this issue. And I think the OPM hack, the Office of Personnel Management hack, kind of brought a a lot of this to the forefront. You know, the the fact that most Americans know what OPM is now um, is a sign that when 23 million records get stolen, um, that's a pretty big deal. And so that has brought this, this topic to the forefront of, of people's minds. And um, on, on this subcommittee, we, we really look at, and I chair it, by the way, um, it's, it's, in, it's a subcommittee within oversight and government reform, um, which has pretty broad jurisdiction. Um, jurisdiction is a word that I've learned and I hear a lot in these, I, I've heard the word jurisdiction more in the last two years than I had the previous 37 years of my life combined, um, because different committees oversee different parts of the, the government. And what we look at in, in this IT subcommittee is information – is information. we say cybersecurity, but in D.C., cybersecurity right now really means information sharing. Um, the second issue we look at is privacy. Um, that's a topic I'm sure we can unpack. Um, I'm, it's real simple. Encryption is good for our national security. Encryption is good for our economy. We should be doing things to strengthen encryption, not weaken it. And um, the fact that a recent – Thank you for saying that. No, look, uh, you know, uh, we had – there was a – the Judiciary Committee in in Congress just issued a report um, basically, you know, saying those same things. Um, And, look, we got to have – got to stop talking past one another um, when it comes to um, the debate between security. We can protect our civil liberties. And, and by the way, our civil liberties are not burdens – they are the things that make our country great, and we can protect those things, and protect our digital infrastructure, and chase bad guys all at the same time. Um, but it's hard, and yeah. and guess what we got we got to talk together. So that that's an area we look at privacy. Uh, the third area is emerging technology, and really in that it's how do you prevent an overly burdensome regulatory environment from getting in the way of entrepreneurship and growth? When I talk to to venture capital folks or, um, folks that invest in you know, new technology. I always ask them, "How many times did you pass over something in the health IT space because you didn't want to have to fool with issues with FDA and things like that?" And, yeah. and it's a lot. And and that guess what? That's preventing um, good things from happening and being able to use data and technology um, to to make people live longer and make them healthier. And the fourth area that I, I spend a, a lot of time on, which I would not have. Pre- um, predicted that when I first ran for Congress was IT procurement. IT procurement is not a sexy topic. It's not a, a topic somebody holds a parade for. Um, but the reality is when the federal government spends $80 billion a year, that's with a B, on IT procurement, and 80% of those goods and services that are purchased are outdated stuff that any of us and any of your listeners would think was is 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 um, old and outdated. It, it's outrageous. Yeah. And um, dealing dealing with that and making sure that the federal government can purchase the latest um, tools and technology to protect the infrastructure. So those are the kind of four areas we look at. And and there's folks that have are starting to learn these issues. Um, they may not be able to. You know, bang out some Fortran 77 code, right? But um, they understand um, the the nuances and, and, and the impact these issues have on, on our government and, and our people.
0: Yeah. So um, you're listening to Cyber Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20 year internet security veteran. I'm joined this week by Congressman Hurd. We're uh, talking through um, his background, uh, cybersecurity, what's going on with uh, IT subcommittees. Um, after the bottom of the hour, we will dive into uh, three items that uh, he's going to look to move forward in this next legislative session. Um, during the last segment, you you'd mentioned, Congressman, the the OPM hack. And um, this is one, I don't know if you saw and then listeners, you can't see, but this one puts a tear in my eye a little bit um, and I apologize to you, I mean, for, um, I'm sure you knew folks that were directly impacted by this. So when he said there were 23 million records that were exposed, these are records of Everyone that works for the government, um, including folks deployed overseas uh, by the agency that he worked for, uh, and that puts people in harm's way. That hack, um, the agency won't tell us, but it likely costs some people their lives. And um, this type of stuff is hard. It's folks over there doing things for uh, our country, trying to make the world a safer place. And cyber stuff here, the computer system somewhere back sitting in some data center put their lives at risk
1: and what what's what what's crazy so i got the letter the day before we did a hearing on this topic and so it was an uncomfortable um set, several hours uh, for the folks from opm it wasn't a zero day vulnerability that was leveraged in order to um in, in order to to take advantage uh, and and to steal these resources it was things it was basic um, things that shouldn't have happened. You know, the, the attackers were able to escalate their privileges. They um, took advantage of a, a vulnerability that we already knew about, and some of the software wasn't patched. and And for at least four years, the IG, the Inspector General for OPM, had been talking about how the digital defenses of OPM needed to be improved. Um, the, the GAO, the General Accounting Office, had a high-risk report um, that identified um, some of OPM's problems. So it, these were these were problems that could have easily been solved. And when I look across the federal government, I, I think that's a similar example. Um, for example, Social Security Administration. Social, Social Security Administration um, has information on every single American. Yeah. Um, our seniors are the most um, vulnerable to to phishing and spear phishing attacks. And we had a hearing with Social Security Administration, the CISO, the Chief Information Security Officer. Um, I asked. They had just had a technical vulnerability assessment done uh, like nine months before the hearing. which is a long time. And I said, how many vulnerabilities did DHS identify? And the CISO said, I don't know. And I'm like, yikes, Okay. My next question was, okay, uh, maybe there's a lot. How many critical vulnerabilities, right? What are those things that should be sorted out immediately? She said, I don't know. So I lose my cool. I said, well, what are you doing to, to, to deal with this? And this was her, the exact response we're doing many different things. <laughs> and for the for your listeners that are not technical, um that is not a technical answer to a <laughs> to a technical question. So, oh. um so this is this is, you know, the, the the we're not talking about incredibly sophisticated attacks. These are things that um can be averted by following good, you know, digital system hygiene.
0: Yeah. And and the uh going through this and and as you described there, The thing is the hygiene has to be consistent uh, because things that were done today, new things happen tomorrow, you talked about the concept of a zero-day vulnerability for those listeners that aren't aware of what that is. This is a vulnerability that has not been disclosed to the manufacturer, so they're not aware of it, so they can't patch it and fix it. Um, And that actually constitutes only a small percentage of the hacking uh, infiltrations use those zero-day vulnerabilities. Those are pretty valuable. Uh, That dark web, they sell them on there. Um, One of them for the Apple iPhone recently sold for millions of dollars, uh, a route into the new version of their OS. So uh, these hygiene has to be a consistent, ongoing basis. And this is uh, just the same as like when you lock your car. If you park in a parking lot and you lock your car every once in a while, the day you don't lock the door in your car is the day people are going to steal the stuff out of the cup holder. Uh, So digital systems are the same way. You you have to have this consistent ongoing maintenance and patching and updating and taking care of things from a behavior perspective. Um, And without doing that, you might be safe today, but we won't be safe next week. And I think this is one of your challenges is, yeah, how do you change this behavior from getting a, a report in nine months and not knowing how many vulnerabilities were on there? But, I mean, the next question you should have been able to ask and get an answer to how many have you patched? Exactly. What day did you patch them? How long did it take until the first patch? In uh, those sorts of things, it sounds like we're just not – there's not an a impetus to move these things forward right now. Look, the
1: – you know, when I, I when I speak to kids, I always tell the kids – I try to speak in as many high schools and middle schools as I can. I tell the kids, I know what I know. I know what I don't know. But what I don't know I don't know is the largest of those three categories. Unfortunately, sometimes the folks that are involved in – defending our digital infrastructure in the federal government, thinks that that third category is the smallest, not the biggest. And so they're not always up to speed on the latest tactics, techniques, and procedures um, you can use to defend against a network, and um, that's a problem. Now, we, we also have to, to realize that these environments, these networks in the federal government are so big. They're so big, and they're so hard um, to to defend against, and so this is this is a unique challenge to folks in the government, and a lot of times we don't have people that have the right background and experience, and that's why we need a working relationship between the private sector and the federal government. And um, the the former the former um, head of the NSA, um, Admiral Rogers, likes to say that if we think that the federal government can defend by itself, and the private sector can defend by itself that's the equivalent of the french thinking the maginot line is going to protect them from the germans um, we have to do this together we have to work together and and i think you know again we have the t- the most talented people we have some of the best companies in the world and we can't do this but we got to we got to make it starts with recognizing what we don't know and there are still CISOs that think that um, they can defend their own data center better then transitioning into the cloud the cloud is not new technology and you we still talk about it as it's a new shiny object in the federal government and and the fact that we're having a debate around you know the security challenges or, or benefits of the cloud you know that it's not it's not 2002 anymore
0: no and so you'd mentioned the size and scope of the the federal um IT budget and the number of systems. So to give some folks some perspective, so um, here in Texas, everyone's probably familiar with ExxonMobil. We may have a a new cabinet member uh, from Exxon here soon. And so Exxon, one of the biggest companies in the world, that federal IT budget is 10 times the size of Exxon's IT budget. And Exxon spends a lot of money on technology doing uh, oil exploration and simulation and modeling. So you think... A company the size of Exxon and then the federal government, all sorts of different divisions and agencies and with different reporting structures and different IT managers. There's not one CIO that oversees every agency of the federal government and has ability to put together one consistent set of policies. So they have 10 times the number of systems and they have to interoperate with each other as one of the uh, pieces uh, Congressman heard talked about was information sharing um, that we'll cover in some more depth after the bottom of the hour break and in order to share information you've got to connect all these systems together so um, it's a very tricky problem to secure and still allow access
1: my friend uh, congressman jerry connelly from uh, virginia he's a democrat he he likes to ask ceos the question how many cios do you have and the ceo looks at him like what are you talking about he's like i have one um, because when folks realize that in a place like DHS, Department of Homeland Security, you have 15 CIOs, um, that structure is does not exist in, in the private sector. And I have a lot of folks, private sector folks, that are like, well... The CISO shouldn't report to the CIOs anymore. It should be reporting to the Chief Risk Officer. And I'm like, yeah, hey, I get it. I get it. Let's just make sure we have a CISO first. Yeah. And and you know the the Department of Interior has a two billion with a B dollar budget on, just for IT. The CIO for the Department of Interior only has control over like thirty percent of that budget. That's crazy. You, you cannot, you know, the person that's responsible for defending their digital infrastructure is not always the person responsible for purchasing the goods and services that have to go on that network. And, and that's where you have a problem and a divide. And so there are some, you know, the, the problem is not technology. Uh, we know how to solve all these problems. A lot of the, t- most of the times the problems with leadership and establishing the right processes um, in order to, to achieve our goal.
0: Yeah. So you're listening to CyberTalk Radio on 1200 WAI. Uh, I'm here with Congressman Hurd and uh, we are getting ready for Inauguration Week in Washington DC. We will have a, a quick break here at the bottom of the hour for news, traffic, weather updates and then we will be back to talk through uh, three legislative agenda items. Welcome back to Cyber Talk Radio. Uh, I'm your host, Brett Pyatt. We're joined this week by Congressman Will Hurd. And in this segment of the program, we're going to go through three legislative agenda items for 2017. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive into the, the first one. There's the middle school coding education. Uh, we've had some folks on uh, the program previously talking about the Cyber Patriot program. Is this tied into that, related, or is some new stuff?
1: Well, it, it's new. And when I was a kid... Um, you know the number of resources and the things that I can do when it came to coding were almost non-existent, and so Cyber Patriot Robotics One. There's so many great programs. Code Up. Um, you have uh, some uh, weekend summer programs that are that are going on, but but this is um, getting so. So the concept is 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 based on this. Um, last year in, in Texas alone, in 2015, there were 42,000 computing jobs that went unfilled. Texas only produced 2,100 computer scientists. And what's even worse than that, only 5,000 kids took the AP computer science course. That's the course where you take it, you get college credit. Of those 5,000 kids, only 24% were girls. Less than 900 were Latinos or Latinas. And only 120 African Americans. That's terrible. And so if we're going to make sure we increase the throughput of students um, that are getting the right technical degrees we got to start earlier and expose them earlier. And so what we're working, we're working with the University of Texas at Austin, um, Center for STEM Education. And they have a partnership with a, with a company called Bootstrap that's based out of Rhode Island, I believe. And what we're doing is we're going to be training middle school math teachers on how to introduce coding into the math curriculum. So it's already approved by TEA, the, the educational agency um, here in Texas, Um, and it, and it goes along with the existing curriculum. And so it teaches you how to do algebra and things like that. And so it's, we're going to be able to train 40 teachers. We had several, um, um, corporate folks that were, um, donated to, to pay for the training. Facebook, (coughs) Dell, Intel, Brocade, which is a software company, Toyota as well. And so we're going to have these 40 teachers, um, You can it, it, the, the, they can apply to get this um, training by the end of January, and the training happens in the spring. And, and so in the fall, we're going to ultimately have 5,000 more kids um, in this region exposed to coding, because if you take 40 teachers, that's 25 students per class, an average of five classes, that's 5,000 kids. Um, and that's just in year one.
0: Yeah, so if you're a teacher or you're a friend of a teacher and you're listening, where do you go apply to get into this class of uh, for the first training here?
1: You can go to our website. It's herd.house.gov slash cs. So that's h-u-r-d.house.gov slash cs. And, and you can apply. And there's a nominal fee, but we've already talked with superintendents and a number of principals. That the school would pay for this because part of this is continuing education. Yeah. And so it, it's, it's an opportunity to one, get these, these, these teachers trained so they can, they can help and um, they can improve their skills. Um, but also the fact that we're going to be getting, you know, so many kids exposed to this and that hopefully that creates that spark and then they can go into the Robotics One program and, and Patriot program and some of the after school programs that are happening across the city.
0: Yeah, I actually uh, saw one of your Facebook posts about this, and if you want to learn more about these things, you can uh, follow Congressman Heard on Facebook as well. Uh, but if, if there's any district out there, if a teacher gets into this program and your district doesn't want to pay, I replied to one of his posts saying I would pay every teacher's fee for the uh, the nominal fee if your district doesn't have the funds. Please don't let that stop you from being interested to apply and to, to get involved in this because – Um, the 5,000 kids in year one here, um, doing my math, that still puts us 30,000 skilled kids um, getting through the education system short just to fill the jobs we have today. Absolutely.
1: And and the way we've we've tried to solve problems is do it once, and then you figure out how to do it on, on on a mass scale. And everybody had talked about this. So we took all those elements that were supportive and said, let's put it together, and let's just do it. And uh, let's start with forty, and yeah. then hopefully, you know, we can inspire folks on how. Th- then, then you get the school district to understand the value, and you have parents calling the school saying, "Hey, I want to get into Miss Jones' class," and then they're going to say, "Okay, we need to have we need to have this curriculum across all of our math teachers," and and that's how you that's how you scale this. Um, but it's, we got to start somewhere. Yeah. And it's great to have those those corporate sponsors that were willing um, to make this really a reality.
0: No, it's it's wonderful, and I, as you prove it out, I um, have a computer education. I was lucky enough as a kid to get to go to some of these camps where I programmed in Logo and Basic and things as a, a youngster, and um, I think it really helped me in my math and science and other education overall. So um, every school superintendent's looking about how do I get my math scores up across the board and getting some of this computer stuff programming into the math education is going to help those math scores as well. And I think as soon as you prove that point out, you're going to see the floodgates of funding open and we can uh, start to transform really America into a cyber country. You're
1: you're exactly right. And and the next step is we have to be doing this in high schools as well, because there are still a number of high schools in the state of Texas that don't offer computer science as a course. And um, the problem there is um, to get the teachers that can teach it, the, to get certified to teach computer science um, at high school is, is, is not an easy thing to do. And so we're going to need to have um, folks that are in the industry industry uh, be mentors and have the right um, training for these teachers. They can go in and take this course. And um, that is something that we, we have to improve and, and we're going to work on that as well.
0: So the Cyber National Guard, switching to your uh, second item. Uh, go ahead and explain this. I think everyone's familiar with what the the National Guard itself is, but is this is a different one?
1: Yes, it, it is. And this this is not my idea. This is a concept that folks have talked about, but we're going to try to to bring this home. And it's very simple. If you're going to, if you're a kid and you want to go to college to you know in a in a technical degree that has something to do with cybersecurity, you'll get a scholarship. And for as long as you got that scholarship, that's how many years. Uh, you have to serve in the federal government. Now, it's not going to be in Department of Defense or the NSA. It's going to be the Department of Homeland Security, Social Security Administration, OPM, these places that really need that talent. And so you work there for the same number of years that you that you got uh, a school paid for, and then you go out and work in the private sector, and those companies are going to be willing to loan you back um, to the government for the proverbial one week in a month, two weeks a year, or ten days a quarter—something um, that doesn't disrupt the business processes—and that improves the cross-pollination of ideas. Um, you, the private sector, is, is 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 interested in this concept because they're going to get people that understand how to operate in these massive environments. And when they go back and forth in their, you know, the the federal service and the private sector, you're sharing ideas and ta- tactics, techniques, tools um, to to improve um, the 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 common body of knowledge on on both sides. And this is something that where we can address a long term issue. So when it comes to the mitigation to deal with the OPM hack, you may have folks that have already been out in the private sector that have been working in OPM. You can bring them back as a tiger team or whatever you want to call it to help deal with this issue. And and I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of support for this, but now we got to, we got to bring it home and, and, and fill it out.
0: Yeah. So what I just heard is I can go to college in a technical program. I can get my degree paid for, I can get out of college and guarantee that I have a paying job working for a federal agency. And then I'm, going to do two weeks uh, a year and a weekend a month to serve my country for some time after that. And college cost me nothing. I can, all that money I would have spent on college, I can use to, to buy a home and raise my family.
1: I may need you to get that, record that and put that on our website because yeah. you're, you're, you're exactly right. This, and, and this is where I tell parents and and grandparents, this is an area where there is a need and it's only going to get more complex. And this is something where your you know, kid is going to be able to have a pretty good career and also serve their country. And um, so there, there's a lot of moving parts uh, to this concept. Um, but as we've been talking about this, um, people are, are excited about the opportunity. And and we have to do it. Um, as you know, our, as we become a more digital world, our surface area of attack increases. We shouldn't be afraid. Of, of that movement, but we need to be thinking about security up front, and when you bake security into products, um, they're going to be way more secure, and we need people that understand that. And, and, I, and I talk to, to folks all the time and say that coding is the literacy of the, of, of the 21st century, and it's the equivalent of you know people from our generation not knowing how to type. It's going to be very hard to get a job, and, and I don't care what career you're going to be in. Uh, coding is going to be important. Imagine doing a um, having to do an Excel spreadsheet in a 3D environment. That's going to require some coding, and, and guess what? We're going to be moving in that direction. And so, I don't care if you could be an architect or a doctor or an accountant or a general. You're going to have to have some exposure to those concepts, and um, and this is these are the the coding classes in middle school. And this Cyber National Guard, I think, are two
0: ways to do this. Yeah. So for those folks that want to learn more about this Cyber National Guard, is there a website to go to or a place to look that up?
1: We're, we're still we'll, we're still fine-tuning um, the, the concept, but you can you can follow us on, on social media. We'll be giving updates periodically. Uh, I'm Heard on the Hill, H-U-R-D on the Hill, um, on whatever your favorite social media platform is and we'll we'll be talking about this over the, over the hundred and fifteenth Congress.
0: okay, so there's not a, a bill that's been proposed yet. There's no one to, to go write all the congressmen and the uh, and congress ladies in all the other districts quite yet, but stay yeah. tuned.
1: Yeah but but also if you have if you have ideas on how to operationalize this, please go to our website and and shoot us a message. Um, we read those things. it's important and and we ha- we, I have a concept on how we can pull this off. Um, but, but we're going to be moving into the bill-writing phase uh, fairly soon.
0: Yeah, so there's, uh, in our listening area, the CEOs and um, founders and owners of over 100 cybersecurity companies. So um, if you've got ideas on how to help the congressman get this uh, Cyber National Guard up and going so that you can uh, fill those job openings you have, uh, please go ahead and uh, get in contact with his office.
1: Yeah, because the, 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 the part that, that I need to get some more feedback on is – how do you loan those employees back into the government without disrupting business operations and so is the is the one week in a month the thing is it 10 days a quarter how how do you build it's it's a little bit different than than going for training in, in the national guard and and some perspective on how um, businesses think that that would be valuable um, for their employees and and how to get them back in the government. That perspective is, is it would be would be helpful for me.
0: That's uh, very good to hear. So you're listening to Cyber Talk Radio on 1200 WAI. I'm here with Congressman Hurd, we're talking through uh, three policy issues that he's working on for this next uh, session in Congress. Uh, The third one, and I think this is uh, probably the most complicated, those first two, um, middle school coding education and uh, Cyber National Guard, pretty clear you can start and iterate and build. This third one on the information sharing. So before the bottom of the hour he mentioned uh, just one of our agencies, the DHS, has 15 different chief information officers. Um, So information sharing across all the agencies and then out to private sector as well to, to really get the knowledge flowing. What's this one about? Help us understand a little more.
1: So, right now, the way um, information sharing happens between the federal government, and the private sector, it's voluntary, and this was codified in the law by the Cybersecurity Act of 2015, which we passed last year. Now, we probably it sh- probably should have been passed you know, ten years ago, um, but but we got it done, and this provides um, liability protection for folks within industry to share information. Um, amongst themselves and, and back to the federal government, and, and you have this the information, the ISACs, the information sharing um, assurance councils um, that various industries participate in. It's a way for industries to share best practices. But the, m- my concept is 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 simple: the folks in the financial services industry have a better idea of where the next malware is going to come from and what it's going to attack. Um, if you talk to um, folks in the federal government about malware list attacks, they'd probably look at you with dead eyes because they would know that that's uh, a trend um, that, is, that is happening. And so <clears throat> what, what we need to do is take those assumptions. Again, if the, if the financial services industry has a better idea of where the next level of malware is going to come from, Let's turn those assumptions into intelligence collection requirements. Let's send those requirements to the national intelligence apparatus, you know, my friends that are still in the CIA and the NSA, to go out and answer those requirements and collect against those requirements. And then once we get that information, let's get that back into the hands of the private sector so that they can have a leg up when it comes to defending themselves. Now, turning assumptions into requirements is is quite easy, actually. Um, tasking um, folks that are involved in in, in in collection within the national intelligence apparatus is is not too difficult, but once we have that information in hand, getting it back into the private sector is really hard. And 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 but this is where we need to go because the private sector does not need. Um, the um, bad IP addresses from the federal government. You know they're getting it from other services. Right? What what the private sector needs is tactics, techniques, and procedures of of uh, advanced persistent threats, and that's the kind of of things that only a a, a nation state can collect against. And so we have to be focusing um, our resources in a way to do only what we, what the federal government can do. And, and this is the framework, but there's a lot of moving parts, there's a lot of problems. Um, we also need to be able to get um, folks in the private sector um, the right clearances to participate in some of these conversations. We gotta get the federal government doing a better job of, of, of giving information out because a lot of times, they'll share information and it was three, three months late um, or it's very vague. If information is not um, actionable and timely, then it's not of, of zero value to anybody. And so these are some of the challenges, and, and it starts with um, a culture in some of these organizations. Um, DHS is always in the conversation as, do they have the same technical capabilities as the NSA or the military? And the answer is no. But they are the entity that would be able to have their culture change to where this, this notion of need to share um, after 9 eleven the 911 report came out commission report came out and said that you know the intelligence communities need to go from need to know to need to share and it sounds real simple but having come from an organization where it was based on need to know um, getting to a point where you're sharing is the first instinct is incredibly hard to do and DHS is positioned to do that and and they have been codified by law as the belly button between information sharing between the the private sector and the
0: federal government. Yeah. And as you, you talk through, so they're sharing with the private sector, but what about uh, sharing with uh, state, local governments, municipalities? So like we've uh, uh, talked in um, this program before about infrastructure attacks of somebody hacking into the power company, shutting the power company down, which then the water treatment plant can't run. And then if you don't have electricity and water, all of a sudden you've got Public uprising in many of these areas. The water treatment and power is uh, in municipals, like it is here in San Antonio.
1: You're, you're exactly right. We have to be working together. And 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 um, UTSA and ACOG, which is the Alamo Area Council of Governments, is working on um, an exercise to 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 do just that. To how do you improve information sharing at all levels? And yes, it has to be with with federal, state, and local. Um, and not you know, everybody needs a different kind of information. The the kind of information, you know, a big sophisticated company like USAA needs from um needs information about is different than a, a small mom and pop shop. And and as we all know, most of the major attacks that have happened in the last couple of years, um it has been a, a third party vendor that has been penetrated and and their access has been leveraged to get after or um, more sophisticated through this more sophisticated defenses, so information sharing is not equal um, when it comes to large businesses down to small businesses, and, and and the federal government has to be nimble enough to know how can you how can you um, provide support. To folks that have very different levels of sophistication when it comes to digital infrastructure.
0: Yeah, yeah, and then, as you, you mentioned, timely and actionable. And as you at USAA, if you share information with them, they can have a team and staff of people to act on it. If you share with the uh, folks at a, a locally owned restaurant mm-hmm. um, that the the equipment they have for processing credit cards probably has a, a malware skimmer on it. Um, they may not be able to do anything about it. So, like, if it's not actionable for them, sharing the information with them doesn't help us get any safer.
1: It, it does. And, and and we also have to, you know, the federal government cannot be everything to everyone. Yeah. And so how do you double down on the federal government's core competencies and, and focus on the things only they can do, but also um, ensure there's a framework that everybody um, is able to get something out of that level of that, that kind of participation.
0: Yeah. So I'd like to, uh, thank you for joining us on cyber talk radio this week. Um, look forward to, uh, you spending another couple of years back in uh, Washington to, uh, help change and, uh, uh make the awareness of cyber issues, uh, something that will stay top of mind with all of your colleagues.
1: No, it's been a, a great experience. I represent 29 counties, from San Antonio to El Paso, down the Eagle Pass. Two time zones, 820 miles of the border. It takes 10 and a half hours to drive from one corner to the other at 80 miles an hour, which is actually the speed limit in most of the district. I've in the last two years, I've done over 400 events in these 29 counties, and there's only been one question that has been repeated in all 400 of those events. And it's a question about cybersecurity. It may be as simple as I got a letter from OPM. Should I use the protection they're offering? To um, you know, what, does my password really need to be over fourteen characters? To um, what are we going to do to defend against um, an information operation from a from a hostile uh, host nation? And and the fact that San Antonio is is really leading. Um, on this topic and to be able to represent my hometown on, on an issue I know a little something about is very exciting. I, I knew I knew San Antonio was doing something right when I was in Seattle recently and the a gentleman there said, Oh, asked where are you from? And I said, I'm from San Antonio. He goes, You know, there's more cybersecurity professionals in San Antonio than anywhere outside the national capital region And I laughed and I said, Well our, our, you know, I know and, and our talking points are getting through so it really is cool participating in, in in this revolution that's really happening here in San Antonio.
0: Yeah, it's very exciting. Um, I think it's uh, I feel privileged to I'll host a radio program about this, and uh, we get guests on from all across the country, even here in our first six months. But um, I'm able to source uh, wonderful guests from here, such as is you. I mean, this is out of the four congresspeople with a computer science degree, one of them happens to be here in San Antonio. So um, that's amazing. If you wanted to uh, hear this whole interview, uh, it will be up on our website, Cybertalkradio.com, on the Tuesday here following this broadcast. Uh, we're also on the iTunes podcast service and Pocket Casts. Uh, you can also follow Cybertalk Radio on Facebook uh, to look at things there. Uh, we broadcast this content out all over the uh, the place because, uh, well, uh, we're – Talking about issues here that are um, timely, um, this is the things that uh, Congressman Hurd's going to be working on for the next couple of years, so you can get involved and help him um, keep an eye on that. Education program there to see how these first 5,000 kids and 40 teachers uh, come through and uh, continue to follow along with, with us and, uh, with uh, his, uh, campaign staff. So to, uh, stay, uh, in touch with you, Congressman, uh, during this next legislative session, where should folks reach out to you?
1: Sure. On social media, heard on the Hill, H-U-R-D on the Hill, um, whatever your, you know, service you like to use, we're on it. And then my website is heard.house.gov.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you again, and uh, have yourself a, a good week and a good two years there in Washington for us. Thanks for
1: having me on.